Hey everybody, this is another special edition mini-series episode of the Running Rogue podcast. I am here with Jason Brooks and Dr. Noah Moose to continue our series on the Human Performance Project. This is episode four of the four we promised, although we are now committing to a fifth episode. We're extending the series because we've gotten a lot of questions from listeners out there already, and we want to go back and cover off on some of those. And so we're going to give you a chance to submit questions by this Sunday, and we'll be able to incorporate those into our next episode and get them answered. We've already gotten a lot of questions so far, and so if you have questions, please submit them to me, chris at roguerunning.com, and I'll make sure that we cover off on those questions. So again, by Sunday the 21st, send us your questions from the series. There we go, fellas. This has been a good one. We've gotten a lot of good responses so far, so it'll be good to get to some of your questions. As we jump into this episode, we're going to talk about agile coaching and how do you make individual adjustments basically to your own programming, not just lifestyle-wise, but also training-wise in order to account for some of the topics that we've already covered from stress, diet, nutrition, inflammation, those types of things. So we're going to talk about that today, maybe some of the more practical applications. Before we get there, there's one loose end, Jason, that has been bothering you for (laughs) the last, what, eight days since we recorded the last episode. So I'm going to throw it to you so we can tie off that loose end and do a little bit of a recap on our last one, and then we'll come back to talk about Agile Coaching. I am happy to say that I didn't let this one stress me out too much. Good. Um, I wouldn't <laughs> want that stress <laughs> building. Um, so we, <clears throat> you asked the question last week about basically how, how would I track or how do I track the efficacy of diet changes? Um, and so I didn't have a, I, I, d- I don't currently. And so I was just talking about what I would do. And the, the, ta- the first thing that I pointed to was tracking homocysteine. And I have a tendency to get like too into the weeds on things and and I should have just like taken the path of a sort of high level answer of homocysteine (laughs) rather than worrying about the complication of what homocysteine actually is. And so uh, I I started to explain that I have the MTHF or I have an MTHFR polymorphism. So I have the homozygous mutation for the C677T gene and Um, basically what I would expect to see because of that is high homocysteine levels. And the hypothesis that Noah and I have been working from is that um, I probably have a problem with um, folate and and the methylation cycle, which is associated with the MTHFR enzyme. And so I've been supplementing with uh, B vitamins, the bioactive form of b6 b9 which is folate and then b12 and so i might expect to see that as i supplement with those vitamins my homocysteine levels come down and if they don't it may be an indication that there is some other deficiency that i may have in the methylation cycle and we won't get into methylation because it's super complicated too and that we could like have a couple of episodes on on MTHFR and the methylation cycle. And, and um, anyway, so folate is one pathway for the methylation cycle to work. Choline is another one. Um, but then also riboflavin deficiency could be associated with 
health outcomes related to methylation problems and the MTHFR uh, polymorphism. And so the reason to go back to this is to kind of like give a window on some topics we've been talking about in diet and nutrition, which is that um, it's really complicated. There's a lot of nuance. It's highly individualized and um, genetics can have a big effect, especially genetics and epigenetics can have a big effect on health, health outcomes that can be influenced by diet and nutrition. And so, um, you know, some of the symptoms that I might have from poor methylation can be related to emotional, mental and physical health. And um, a lot of those can be solved through diet simple lifestyle changes rather than if I maybe went to my primary care physician and complained about depression and anxiety, they might put me on some kind of pharmaceutical intervention that would be a little bit crazy and I could just solve those through diet and nutrition. And so um, if anybody is interested in these topics or you've maybe heard that you have some sort of genetic polymorphism or you've never looked into it, um, you can look into it. Um, Chris Masterjohn has a lot of information out about this. And he also has a basically cheat sheet on biomarkers you can use to check your nutritional health where he's really focused a lot on MTHFR. And then um, Noah is working on a basically biochemistry cheat sheet or biochemistry calculator that will focus on, on athletes, endurance athletes, and how some of your biomarkers may be different from sort of like the median population in America. And so you can look at biochemistry markers specific to the fact that you're an endurance athlete and how that might influence some of those things. And so as far as like measuring and tracking the efficacy of your nutrition, it helps to have some kind of resource like that where you, you can take bio, you can take basically a blood sample, simple lab test. You can look at the key biomarkers that might be important for you. So for me, it would be both looking at what I need to understand as an endurance athlete, as well as what I need to understand because of genetic polymorphisms that I have. And the genetic side of it, for those that have done a 23andMe test or one of these other genetic tests, there's some other sites, and Noah, you pointed me to one, I don't remember the name of it, where you can actually upload your data and get some additional feedback on some of these things that you're talking about. For me, I did that and found that I had a the mutation around vitamin d absorption which explained why i need to supplement and and the factors that led to my stress fracture in 2016 you you have a different mutation that's causing issues with b vitamins and folate what's that site noah give us that really quickly so the one that i'll typically use there there's basically two um for just like general there's one called genetic genie it's free that's the one i use yeah and it and it really for for the most part it's going to give you most of the big ones it's going to give you a couple of the mthfr genes that jason's talking about it's going to give you um, some of the detoxification pathways it's going to give you vitamin d receptors um, and it's a free one. There's another one that like if we want to get a little more deeper into it, uh, it's called MTHFR support. It's going to give you like a 30 page printout, which wow. for most people don't really need. It just helps us to kind of understand more of, of some of those areas. But as Jason was saying, it's like you have to like when you're like you have to have you have, for those. A lot of people will have to know how to read those. It'll basically just tell you if you're homozygous or heterozygous for the specific gene where the like 23andme doesn't really give you they might tell you a few of those things but they don't really lay it out you got to understand what you're reading but like jason was saying one of the things that i think is a little bit easier that we want to know is because different genes will play on each other so you may have like an mthfr gene but you may have another gene 
that's changed a little bit to create an adaptation. So what you want to do with these is you want to look at some of these biomarkers that are the downstream effects. So homocysteine is a great example of that. One of those markers is it's this downstream um, marker that you can measure really easily through the blood or through the urine that's going to tell you the status of what's going on with your genes. And it's like, oh, do we need to change some of the B vitamin supplementation? And if you try some different supplementation and maybe you're not getting that number to where you need to, do you need to add in some other nutrients or other things that are part of that cycle? So it's a way that you can get a, an objective measure of essentially how your body's functioning. And I would say, you know, everybody's going to have like, you know, one or two genes that are a little bit changed. Like Jace, the, the MTHFR gene, about 30% of the population is going to have something like that where they don't activate one or more of the B vitamins, which can affect your training and recovery if you, if you, don't, know, you, know, if you don't know that. And so I think looking at some of those things, but then again, looking at the markers and if the markers are good, then you've got those bases covered. But if they're elevated, then you want to, you know, make sure that you're taking some different proactive effects to to try to to improve those markers for recovery. So and again, this is a very personal thing, right? Yeah, so that's right. where some of this stuff can be challenging is that you can't use can't use broad rules of thumb you got to understand what your levels are what your genetic makeup is how that affects what you're doing and then as you just said Noah some of these things interact with each other so you got to be able to interpret what what those interactions are doing so it's helpful to have somebody to help you sort through yeah, that absolutely. like you yeah anything else to add there Jason before we jump into agile coaching before we scare them away with another big <laughs> word <laughs> No, no, no more okay. geek speak. <laughs> I, I will say that one of my athletes this morning mentioned peeing on a pH paper. So we're already making impact there you go. on the pH paper business, which, yep. is, which is good. <laughs> she, I think she's seeing you later today. So we'll be, <laughs> we'll be talking about how to interpret her, her urine, her urine pH later. Well, aren't you glad that I opened up that yeah, discussion I'm with like, all your this athletes? Is awesome. <laughs> now I'm talking about pee at six in the morning at the track. Okay, so with that as our little bit of a preamble, let's jump into Agile coaching, this discussion. We're going to try to be a little bit more practical about how you take some of these things and then adjust your individualized training as well as healthcare, lifestyle as well. So I want to start ask by asking you, Jason, what do you mean by Agile coaching? Okay, I'm just going to warn everyone this will be a little long-winded. Um, as I as I kind of run through mm -hmm. this framework, but I'll start by analogy with a sort of tale of two paradigms. So um, we so agile methodology comes from software development, and it's a response to the traditional project management framework in software called Waterfall. And basically, Waterfall is the industrial model of management creation project management so um, the industrial model it works great when we are building cars um, or constructing buildings or something like that where basically you have a predefined outcome and you ha you can sort of set a date on when you want to complete that goal and then you can work back and set milestones and then assign resources like labor material money to achieving those milestones and ultimately that final goal it's very formulaic i set it all up i knock it down 
And um, that sort of industrial model is pervasive in America. It's in our education system. You know, we have a grade progression. Each year we're expected to learn a set criteria. We're going to have progress reports. We're going to have report cards. Standardized tests. Standardized tests, right? And it's like after six weeks you will have achieved X knowledge. And, um, you know, so the the this industrial model of thinking of management of creation is is great in certain applications we've sort of applied it to everything in america and we did this in the beginning of the software age with the waterfall methodology thought uh at the i want to build this thing this software application let's call it and we're going to go ahead and define all of the prerequisites exactly what it's going to look like how it's going to function how users are going to interact with it and then we're going to just sort of work our way back to find some milestones assign some resources and go off and build this and uh, waterfall was really an abysmal failure in software development and um, so agile came out of it as a response and agile is um basically a highly adaptive form of project management and creation and it's one where you basically um, start with a long-term vision and a general idea of how you're going to get there and then you build little bits of what you want at a time and then you take feedback and you iterate and you adapt to what you're learning and and you start to maybe build in a different direction based on the feedback that you're getting and then you collect more feedback and you build a little more so you plan at a high level but then create in small increments and um, so I apply agile to coaching and training and in the following way so rather than write like a 16-week training plan so here's your industrial model of sort of coaching I'm gonna write a 16-week training plan I'm gonna specify all the workouts that we're gonna do along the way my end goal may be like I don't know let's say it's the Chicago Marathon or something and then I'm going to um, specify all the workouts we're gonna do for 16 weeks these are the days we're gonna do these key workouts and then you know I show I, I, I wake up every day and I go do whatever is on my training calendar and then I just hope for the best in the end and the agile methodology as i apply it to training for myself and to coaching is one where we say okay we have an end goal and we're going to start with a high level plan where we look at cycles of work and recovery and base building and that sort of thing and then um we make small basically rather than write a 16-week plan up front i'll write shorter plans and and take feedback so let me just like kind of step back and explain this a little bit better so with the with the agile framework as i use it i take an end goal put that on the calendar maybe some races that we're going to hit along the way and then i have specified cycles that i'm using so an athlete is either in an off-season period they're in a base building period they're in a peaking period or they're in a recovery period and so those are kind of the four states you might ever be in and those are like the periodization cycles of the training plan and so those are kind of defined at a high level at the beginning let's say i'm coming off the off season i'm going to start with a base building period and then i'm going to go into peaking maybe toward like a b race along the way to my ultimate goal and i'm going to peak maybe race or not and then i'm going to come into a cycle of recovery and then depending on how long i'm in that cycle of recovery i'm going to have a corollary 
base building period and then move back into peaking and then maybe a B race again and so on and so forth till I get to the ultimate goal. And then kind of after my command performance for the year or the 18 month cycle, I'm going to take a period into the off season again. And off season is like your time to go back and focus on family and other things that are going on in your life um, that aren't necessarily related to running because you've been focused on running or whatever your endurance pursuit is for a while. Um, recovery is just an opportunity to kind of like consolidate gains from a peaking period and to uh, also you may spend an extended period of time in recovery if say you've gotten injured or something throughout your training cycle or you're having some other kind of issue with training adaptations um, and then peaking is like where all your quality work comes and that's where you're really working on like making a lot of fitness gains and that peaking period could end in a race or not as i said um, and then ultimately hit your goal and you're off for a while so as we come down from the high level what i like to do is um, i plan basically four to six weeks of work at a time for an athlete so like build out that calendar for maybe four to six weeks and then meet every week in what's called a stand-up so um, this is, this comes straight from agile stand-ups and software are usually daily but um, you know depending like if it's a one-on-one -on -one athlete then i'll probably meet with them once a week and i'm taking feedback on how their training is going um, any issues they might be having, how they're responding, what kind of adjustments we need to make. And then each week is kind of like a sprint. So we meet, we talk about what's going to happen for the week, we gather feedback on the previous week, make any adjustments that are necessary, and then set the athlete off for a week, and then come back the next week and check in again. And then get, get feedback on how the training is going, how they're responding, and and we keep doing that week over week and keep kind of a rolling basis of like four to six weeks of planned workouts at a time. And you never know what might happen. Might The athlete might get injured and we come off of training for a while, spend some time in recovery. And so, so then we get into the sort of like decentralized and democratized decision-making part of the agile methodology, which is on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I'm not necessarily prescribing like on Thursday you have to do this workout, on Tuesday you have to do this workout, on Wednesday you have to do this workout. It's more like goals and a lot of onus on the athlete to make decisions. And we use basically two key things to help with that decision-making process, objective and subjective measures. So subjective measures would be like, how do I feel today? Am I fatigued? Am I feeling apathetic? Do I feel tired? Do I feel sore? Did I sleep well last night? Did I drink too much? Did I eat something shitty? You know, how, how basically do I feel? And then we look up objective measures. And objective measures um, are basically physiological metrics that help us understand whether or not we're, we're ready to train on that day. And the key metric that I, I look at because from a cost standpoint and, and from a complication standpoint, it's sort of the easiest is heart rate variability. And basically what that is, is our heart beat is not perfectly rhythmic. There's variation in our heartbeat and that variation in our heartbeat can change from day to day. And it usually changes in response to the status of our central nervous system. So when I, we use heart rate variability basically as a window into the status of our central nervous system, are we sympathetic dominant or parasympathetic dominant? Or are we in some kind of like Goldilocks space? And so um, what I do as an athlete, what I encourage the athletes on, on my team to do is to take heart rate variability measurements on a daily basis. So you get both your resting heart rate 
and your heart rate variability out of that. We use an app called HRV4 Training, which gives you some general feedback as far as guidance on uh, today you're in a good physiological state to train or today you're not in a very good physiological state to train. And so if I wake up on any given day and I kind of feel like shit and my HRV score is poor and I maybe have a hard workout train for the day, then my advice for myself for an athlete would be to lay up that day, to take take the advice of both what you're feeling subjectively and what you're seeing objectively and maybe go for a recovery run or take the day off or do something different and then wait until you get that kind of like peak readiness to train and then do your hard workout on that day. So, so each week might look like, you know, cover eight hours of running, do these two key workouts, always follow these key workouts with a recovery run. And then everything that's not a hard workout is like a math effort training and then maybe some running economy work mixed in there. And then the athlete really is responsible for making day-to-day decisions about whether or not it's optimal for them to train. And um, you can then, from a high level, start to layer in things like um, regularly checking blood chemistry, organic acids, that sort of thing, like checking in on health markers and figuring out whether or not um, overall you're in a good place for a hard training cycle and working toward a big race or not and that's where we get into kind of like the agile healthcare part of this um and so and that's like the synergy between sort of stress diet nutrition and training is looking at how am i responding to the training from a physiological standpoint how are things going with my diet nutrition is it supporting my training does my training seem to undermine anything I'm doing with my diet and nutrition or does my training indicate that I need some sort of you know like um, strategy to combat the effects of training by changing things in my diet or or managing my stress in a different way and uh, so I'm just going to start with that as like the general <laughs> framework <laughs> um, nice preamble that, yeah. yeah that was great so <laughs> so basically to summarize I mean basically what we're talking about is is a more flexible coaching model that allows you to flex based on how you're feeling and how you're responding to the training to try to get to that end goal versus being so rigid that you're not listening to how you feel and adjusting accordingly. Correct. So let's drill into, for example, or just by way of example, this heart rate variability thing. So you mentioned the app. How are you measuring that? What are you actually looking for? Can anybody do it use if they have a smartphone? Is that is it yeah. s- as simple as that, or do, you some, or do you need some sort of heart rate monitor? No. So the what, so there are a couple nice things about the HRV4 training app and why we use it. Um, for one, it's only ten bucks. It is scientifically validated. The, it uses it's a smartphone app, and it basically uses the camera and flash on your smartphone. Mm-hmm. So you. You turn it on, you hold your finger up to the flash in the camera for 60 seconds and it gets the reading. Once it gets your reading, it then asks you a series of sub- subjective questions. So that's kind of baked into it, right? How was your quality of sleep last night? How fatigued are you feeling? It's integrated with Strava um, and also Final Surge, which we use as a coaching platform. So I get that data imported automatically so that I can look at athletes' daily vitals. 
And then, um, it, you know, it also goes through sort of like subjective measures of fatigue, soreness, ask you whether or not you drank, whether you were traveling, whether your daily routine is normal. So it's getting at like common stress markers. And then um, it spits out ultimately what's what it calls a stress score. And so it just gives you a number that you can use um, to understand whether or not you're sort of trending positively or negatively. And, it, and then it will recommend, hey, like here's your, your baseline over the last seven days. Here's yesterday's reading. Here's today's reading. So you can see today's HRV relative to the rest to the past seven days. And it'll say, you know, your HRV is low outside of your normal range. Today would be a good day to take it easy. Or you have, you, you know, you have a particularly high HRV stress score. And so today would be a good day to go and crush a workout. Or you get kind of like the middle of the road. Today is a day to proceed as normal. So that just gives you a helpful um, sort of packages it nicely for you. And um, so that's a simple version of it. You can certainly um, get more complicated and get a lot more out of the technologies. NOAA uses uh, Omega Wave, which um, has the added benefit of DC potential. Um, so it's giving you resting What's heart rate, heart rate variability, and the DC potential. And I'll let Noah talk about that because he's, he uses Omega Wave and I don't. So he'll be a lot better at kind of talking about that. What's DC them. potential and what's Omega Wave? So so the Omega Wave system, uh, I got introduced to it a long time ago uh, by Randy Huntington, who was uh, one of the jumps coach for the U.S. team. He uh, coached Mike Powell, who's still, I believe, the world record holder in yep. the long jump. Yep. Um, and they, they used this system back in the day when he was at the, the Olympic Training Center. He's now coaching for China, they're still using it. Um, what it does, it's, it's a heart rate variability, and so they have a whole logarithm built into it that basically will tell the athlete like how ready they are to train. And the DC potential component of it is essentially the measurement. It's another, so the heart rate variability tells basically how your heart and your central nervous system are functioning. DC potential essentially gives you the output of your brain power. So one of the of your central nervous system. So one of the big things like with sprinting, jumping, those kind of things is is basically the dynamic power. It's it's more of a brain based activity, sprinting, jumping, those explosive activities. So it'll also tell you basically how how much juice is left in your brain, essentially to make it a really easy way to measure that. And so the nice thing I like about Omega Wave is they have what's called the windows of trainability. Yeah. And so they have uh, they have a breakdown of four different things. They have uh, endurance. They have uh, they have strength and speed, or they have speed and power, strength, and then coordination and skill. And so what you have is you may you know during a, you'll do an HRV and it may say okay your endurance is ready but you're not ready for like strength and speed and you're not or you're not ready for sorry strength and power you're you're not ready for speed and power or like you can do strength and endurance and it has these four different windows and they basically are like are they open and so yeah you have basically can i like power can i lift can i do something like you know a power movement deadlift something like that strength and speed can i like you know can i sprint can i do something like that or coordination and skill if you're trying to develop let's say you're a soccer player and you're trying to develop different um, movement patterns those kind of things along those lines uh, you you're you're kind of working in you know is your brain ready for those and then it gives you essentially an intensity level based on like heart rate so it'll say okay you know your endurance you're good to go up to you know essentially like this like heart rate range and so it gives you a little bit more information about 
different areas that are open to you. So the DC potential basically is going to measure the, the power output of your brain. So if you're not ready for like, you know, like speed training or power training or coordination, you might do some li lighter things with that less complex things. And there's often times when like your endurance, when you're, you, you should back up on your endurance and just focus a day on some like short, quick burst because maybe your heart and your, that whole area isn't recovered but your brain's on it's just that your your you know your your heart and your body aren't recovered but maybe your brain's ready to learn a new skill so you could focus on maybe doing some different drills different things like that but you don't want to ramp up the intensity of all of those things so i've really liked um omega wave over the years because it does provide a little bit more information like heart rate variability it's one of those things where it's actually one of the most researched technologies that there is. And so it, you know, it, it basically will just give you a window into how recovered you are. And it's super easy. So Omega Wave, you wear a heart rate chest strap and uh, there's a couple pads that go on uh, your, your thumb and your forehead. It's about a four minute test. It measures all of that right before you work out. And the nice thing is, is when it first when, when it first came out, the system was about sixty thousand wow. dollars in the uh, early like nineteen nineties two thousands. Legitimately, you can get it on your iPhone for tw or for two hundred dollars now. Wow. So, interesting. What does DC stand for? Uh, direct current. Okay. So Got it. yeah. Got it. So it's running a current through your yeah. fore forehead and thumb. Yeah. So it's basically checking that whole thing. So. Interesting. Yeah. So basically yeah. giving you those windows. Okay. So, so using that information or what you're getting from this $10 app, you can basically see whether your body is ready to accept the benefits of training on a given day. Right. Right. So that that's all good and fine if you're an elite athlete that's just basically has you know a schedule that can be flexible and you can manipulate your days based on how you're feeling on a given day that's harder for somebody who has family life kids everything else going on and and maybe those individuals are more stressed but they have to have a schedule a routine is so important for many when it comes to to getting their work in when it relates to their training so how do those how do those two things dovetail this idea that you got to have routine with this idea that well sometimes you're just not ready yeah this model works really well in the one-on-one -on -one coaching context so i i use this with my one-on-one -on -one athletes and um or the athletes that i work with in a one-on-one -on -one context and um, they're often running on their own and so it's, it's much easier for them to, I mean, they're going to run every day more or less that they have planned if that's five days a week, six days a week, seven days a week, whatever it is. But it, it's just a matter of today when you go out and run, take it easy. Um, or today when you go out and run, you know, work hard. Or today when you go out and run, it can just be like a normal sort of map training day or something like that. In the group context, it's a little bit more difficult. And so what I've been experimenting with here with the Rogue Trail Project is that um, every day of the week, I have like a s series of optional workouts. And so um, I encourage, I, basically what we have is some tension right between, we want to leverage the benefits of group training, which are um, like coming together and doing hard work together so that both like we can 
enjoy the camaraderie of suffering together, but then we also have our fellow athletes and teammates to push us to higher levels, right? Maybe we can achieve more on a hard day chasing our friends or enjoying the energy of pushing each other than we could on our own. And so there are some trade-offs here in this model, especially in the group training context. But um, nonetheless, I offer each day we meet, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, either a, like a math-ish recovery run option, the easy run that we do, um, or a quality workout. And, um, you know, I just encourage the athletes to make the best decision for themselves and not necessarily follow what the group is doing. And that's how, I, I mean, I try to get around that. I, I don't feel like... Um, just just because we need routine in our lives means that we have to follow like a really rigid schedule. You want to run as much as you possibly can as long as you're prepared for the work and you're ready for it on any given day. Um, and so it's really just a matter of trying to optimize your training performance so that you can optimize your race performance. So you're going to optimize your training performance by doing the right work at the right time. And that's what the Agile methodology is really about at the core of it is doing the right work at the right time. Well, and I think in particular, knowing when you're not ready and when doing hard work is going to dig you a bigger hole, right. right? I mean, so I think a lot of it is in the exceptions and there's a huge range. I mean, I think about a workout like I, like my group just did this morning. We, had a, we went to the track. We had a couple of different options. One workout for our speed track, those training for 5K, 10K, and also those training for the half. And then another marathon workout. And so you had those two options, but you're at a track, so you could also have an infinite number of options. And right. I had one woman who just coming off of a sinus upper respiratory infection, just finishing up a course of antibiotics from that. She started the workout, did three laps and then came over and said, look, I'm just, it's not going to happen for me today. Yeah. You know, I'm, I do, I'm coming off the sickness, lungs are burning, all these things. And I'm like, awesome so i gave her a third option she ended up doing sort of a version of straights and curves instead just to kind of keep the keep the economy there and the legs moving and get some work in but that wouldn't build or break her down further right and so that's where to me the dialogue with the coach becomes so critical it's like you said you call it the democratization of the process is right that feedback so going back garmin has a methodology on this right somehow built into their watches where they're telling people after a run, don't run for three days or whatever it may be. It seems like their methodology is generally wrong or extreme. <laughs> uh, but maybe one of you guys can talk to that versus one of these other tools that you've already mentioned. So, so I think one of the things that's important to realize with what they're taught, like wh when, when they give that they're, they're kind of, they're using a little bit of heart rate variability after your, your workout, after they measure that. Uh, and what and I think the 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 one thing that that people get confused and and with recover there you can do recovery based training. And so people think that you you know you have to not do anything for seventy two hours. And so what it's really saying is you need to govern your training or workout over the next like two to three days. And and there's is a broader logarithm. And we, I've used this with. With Omega Wave, they have, you know, a lot of times you'll see that all the windows of trainability will be either in the yellow or red. And it just basically says like a recuperation or recovery day. And if you look on their, basically their heart rate zones, 
there's certain like recovery, like heart rates or recuperation heart rates. So for like a, a recovery day, it may be as much as like doing some like aqua jogging or even, you know, going out and doing like a really easy run in, in a lower heart rate. It's not saying don't do anything. And I think that that's where the confusion is with recovery is people actually think that you are either like training or you're doing nothing. Right. And there's a lot of things that you can do from, you know, cross training uh, movement based things you can do. I mean, even, you know, as far as doing different body weight circuits and things like that, where you're controlling the heart rate, working on movement, those kind of things, you can really incorporate things in. And you can even incorporate, you know, kind of like you were saying with the lady with straights and curves, right? You can still, you, you can still incorporate some things that develop a little bit of like, like recovery, but also like pop snap in the nervous system. Some like quick bursts that maybe aren't metabolically, um, demanding if, if you have some access to some of those other you know a- areas of your body but it's really trying to to figure out like a re- you know a, a recovery training strategy strategy because oftentimes just rest isn't actually the best way to recover like doing nothing yeah. oftentimes is is yeah. not so you want to focus on recovery based training which i think is something that uh the one thing i like about using heart rate variability with athletes is most athletes are actually terrible judges of how recovered they are. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's almost like if you're using one of these strategies, like an HRV for training or a Omega wave or, or things like that to govern how your body's recovered, it gives you permission to be like, you know what, I'm not going to go and do this like super hard workout today. And I'm going to back back a little bit. So, and I've had also athletes that have used these, these, you know, mega wave and HRV for training and those things. And they'll have a really terrible score. And it's not a predictor of how your workout's going to go either. Right. I mean, I remember right. an athlete I, they, when we first started working with this is they, they use this and they're like, oh yeah, I have this really bad score. I was like, well, maybe we should push the workout, you know, for a day. And they're like, well, I can only do it this day. And, and so I was like, all right, let's like, just see how it goes. And they like killed the workout. But what ends up happening is you're kind of, it's, it's that health reserve status. They dip into that health reserve a little bit. And about two weeks later, we had to like back back a little bit because there was a little injury thing that popped up. And it right. was probably like if they didn't push that workout, you know, a week later, two weeks down the road, would that have been there as they kind of dipped into that health reserve? So another question I have here is at some level, especially for those that might be training for marathons, learning to do work when you're tired, when you're fatigued is part of the drill. So, so is, is that something to consider too? The fact that, you know, yeah, you're going to be a little beat up. So how do you know the line between, Hey, I'm just tired because I'm working and I'm supposed to be tired. And then fighting through some of that kind of fatigue as a part of training versus, I need to back off and recover and do something else today. How do you know that fine line? Well, um, what, I, what I've noticed is that most days I'm sort of somewhere in the middle and I may kind of feel like shit when I get up. And so subjectively I'm thinking like, I'm really tired. Um, and, but objectively my measures are are kind of like middle of the road and so that's a day when I'm like okay I've just got to get up Suck and it do up and the do work it. right yeah and and that is part of it now if I but what I don't want to do is have you know maybe like some 
some physiologic metrics that say you should fucking stay in bed today. And then I'm like, well, I'm just going to get up and go anyway, because that's what, that's what we do. And that's the only way I'm going to get better at times. Training hard can be a detriment. Um, and, and so like if you're sick, if you're maybe feeling a little bit injured or if you have a really poor physiological metric, then that is a time I think to, to lay up to be smart, to be patient, to wait, you're going to get plenty of opportunity to really hammer. Um, Run and easy, then, but then also, else. yeah, like if you do get one of those days where, you know, your objective measures are just like flashing green lights. I mean, really that's a day when it's like, let's go out and take advantage of this opportunity to really see what, what my potential is right now. Like that's a great day to get a good checkpoint on yeah. overall fitness. Another part of this I would imagine too is the, the learning process that comes with it of saying, okay, my scores are low today. My yeah. scores are low on Wednesdays every week or on Thursdays every week. I would imagine you can start to pick up patterns that will then allow you to hopefully adapt the other factors we've been talking about, stress, sleep, nutrition and to try to understand how those variables are affecting your readiness for workouts right absolutely yeah so we talked a lot about stress and the central nervous system and being in a sympathetic or parasympathetic state and you can really start to kind of dial in what that feels like um as you're taking some of these measures I think maybe this would also be a good opportunity to talk about like the nuances and the pitfalls of some of these technologies. So like, like the Garmin example, I, I use Sunto, but I have a wrist top heart rate monitor and it's not even directionally accurate. Like yeah. every run I go out on is somewhere between like 180 and 190 beats per minute <laughs> as an average heart rate. And sometimes I'm like You're peaking at 215. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'll be fucking dead if I right. just ran a mile at a 210 heart rate. But anyway, right. Um, so you get a recovery score that's probably inflated anyway, because you might not have the right technology. So that's why if you're using a heart rate monitor for any sort of training purposes, a chest strap is the way to go. But also, um, even with, um, you know, like the HRV4 training app, I've, I've seen athletes that could like, will go run a race one day and then the next day their stress score is like super positive two points above what it's ever been way outside the normal range which is probably an indication that they're like in a deep parasympathetic response to whatever they did the day before and so you got to kind of like understand um, a little bit about how that technology might respond on your central nervous system state and then and if you can understand what it sort of feels like you know like if you've ever had a massage or you've been to a chiropractor and you get that treatment you have that euphoric feeling that you talked about people getting in your office and it's like oh suddenly i'm really parasympathetic dominant then you can kind of know like oh i maybe shouldn't trust the data on this day <clears throat> so i don't know i'd be curious too what your thoughts are on that no. Yeah, I think that it, it's kind of getting a like a window into that. And after looking at a lot of these, to to Chris's point, it's kind of an interesting thing. A lot of times when you're just having muscular fatigue and your your body is trying to like recover and you're trying you're you're fatigued, right? Because you're doing a marathon cycle, and part of that is is what's going on. 
is you actually don't see that much of a shift oftentimes in heart rate vari variability based on fatigue and, uh, of the muscular system. It's really when your, your body starts to, as we kind of talked about um, in a couple episodes ago, as you're moving through those, the, those phases of degeneration, you don't see the heart rate variability start to change that much until you start to get into that neural hormonal upregulation where you've kind of tapped into that reserve capacity in your body and your body's trying to, to, to balance these things out. But day-to-day -day training, it's like there, there's days when, you, you know, people will have good scores and they're like, man, my muscles in my body just, you know, they're tired, yeah. you know, and, 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 but that's saying, you know, your, your body's basically saying you're not in this, you're not dipping into your reserve capacity. So we want to push and, and train. And I think oftentimes, you know, I'm always, typically in my office, I'm always like the bearer of bad news, right? <laughs> I'm always the one that's like, don't run, you know, <laughs> go slower, back off. And, and I think that maybe people like, they're like, I don't think this guy likes hard training. And <laughs> right. I'm, I'm all about like getting out and, and, and working hard and doing those kind of things. But I think it's about people learning their body. And, and you, as you do it a little more, like Jason says, you kind of learn a little bit about what's going on and what's like normal fatigue versus, you know, I, I think I need to just take, you know, instead of going out and doing this hard workout today, I think I need to just, I'm going to go run easy you know, and then I'm going to come back on Saturday and I'm going to, you know, really try to go after my, my next workout, make right. sure I'm ready for that. And it get like I said, it gives people a little bit of permission, but you kind of learn like what's normal fatigue versus like I'm dipping into the well a little bit. Yeah. So well, I do think that part is super important of giving people permission because a lot of times I think it's sort of like you said on the first episode, sometimes we think it's in our head. <laughs> when mm -hmm. it's not in our head, it's actually our body really trying to tell us that something's wrong. The The alarms are going off. It's like the fire alarm's going off and we just decide to stay in the building anyway. <laughs> and and so I think that's huge for people to say, okay, this isn't in my head. My body is actually telling me that today needs to be an easier day or an adjusted workout or something like that. And this gives you an objective way to measure that. So that is important. For you, Jason, I'm assuming you use this tool for your own personal training. I do. Two questions. One, how often does it tell you to make adjustments as somebody who's pretty tuned into this? And two, has that evolved for you over time? Have you been able to make those days fewer and far b farther between? I have. And it's probably twice every two weeks it depends so the key things i will so once a week well on average it might happen like twice in a week and then okay, you know, the then next week, week i'm yeah. all good or for like 10 days i have no problems and it, and it kind of fluctuates so for the most part i'm usually within my normal range from a baseline perspective and then at times um, I'll either be sympathetic or parasympathetic dominant. And so like if I'm a little parasympathetic dominant, my score will be a bit higher and it's indicating like, Hey, go out and kill the workout. And then if I'm a little sympathetic dominant, it'll say, you know, chill out. Um, the key things that affect, especially the sort of low stress scores, which are an indication that I should take it easy or the consumption of alcohol. <clears throat> so if I drink, especially red wine, um, then I'll usually get a low score. If I don't sleep well, I'll typically, typically get a low score. If I'm under a lot of stress, 
um, then I usually am also drinking a little and not sleeping as well. <laughs> and um, so it's usually like lifestyle patterns. So I've almost started to kind of be able to predict it. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to stay up with my wife and, and enjoy some, you know, quality time and have a few drinks and maybe not sleep as much. And I just know that like the next day I'm probably going to be somewhere on the low end of my range. And, um, you know, so what you kind of want to see if you're really doing a good job of managing a healthy training cycle is kind of a gradual rise and that that HRV stress score, as well as a decline in your resting heart rate. And those are some of the kind of key things to look at if you're measure, if you're if you're managing that well. And then just expect that illness, um, alcohol, poor sleep, poor poor eating like if i went out and ate some fried chicken i'd probably be a little bit fucked up the next day or something like that like things that my body's just not used to because effectively what my body's doing is pushing energy into kind of like managing poor dietary choices um, and so those are things that will typically throw throw the scores off for me um, and it, it's usually not hard training um, though if i do if i do so some weeks like I'll get a lot of opportunities to get on trail run and um, especially this time of year, I can get really amped up cause it's sunny <laughs> and it's like 60 degrees Beautiful. and I get like two hours out on the trail and I just like fuck it up. You know, I go, I go to town and then, and then my body's tired and I might do that three times in a week. And then it's like, Hey, you just basically ran three tempo runs on the trail. So you chill out a little bit, but right. um, yeah. So those are the key things. I don't have that problem. Why red wine? Why does it do that? Because I feel like I have similar response to red wine in particular. What's it about red wine? Is it the sulfate? I think it's the sugar, maybe, but that's totally speculation. Yeah, but I could have white right wine. Now. But why wouldn't this? Why wouldn't you have the same effect with white wine? I don't know. Tannins. What do you think? Ah, uh, yeah, that that's actually a good question. Typically, I, I I think for for a lot of people, it's it's kind of how your body processes it, and it can be a little bit stressful. It creates a little dysregulation in the blood sugar. And I, yeah, I don't know why red wine versus white wine and, and some people, yeah, could be, yeah, the tannin, sulfates and things yeah. like that. But those are like sulfates are typically in most wines anyway. So right. that's an interesting like thing that that red wine does it, but not white wine. That's, that's well, I don't drink a lot of white wine. So maybe I should pass that theory. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should a little self-experimentation. Right. <laughs> Sounds fun. I'm telling you, for me, I, I can be fine off white, but red, I don't know what it is. And then it doesn't take a lot. Like it could be one glass of yeah. red wine and it would mess me up. So, okay. So we've talked about kind of adapting based on these objective measures coming from a couple of different potential tools. Let's talk a little bit more about the experimentation around figuring out what variables affect yeah, we just, for you, red wine, lack of sleep, stress, those, those things sound pretty normal, but how should someone track and then adjust their lifestyle factors to try to account for some of these readings that they might be seeing? Uh, so, so the app actually tracks a lot of, a lot of that for you. Like it okay. gives you graphical representations of how your heart rate variability and how your resting heart rate has changed over time. And then it's because it's collecting data on both all of your subjective metric inputs as well as objective. It shows like anytime you've reported injury. So like, say I'm looking at a 30 day graphical representation of my heart rate variability stress scores. It's, it's showing me what my training load was on each day, whether or not I reported being injured, whether or not I reported drinking alcohol, 
Um, it also captures information about routines. So like, was I traveling? You know, so I'm, I'm a race director. I spend a lot of weekends out in the field, um, maybe not sleeping a lot, um, working tons of hours, kind of traveling around. Like my routine is disrupted. And so you look at how does that stress affect you? And for some people, it might be work, travel, um, or maybe they just had a new baby. And so like their sleep schedule is completely atypical. So you can look at things like that and then start to try to piece together. Okay, are there... Um, commonalities or threads that I'm seeing across this that I can take a look at. Um, so that's one way, at least using the data that you're getting from whatever application you might be using to track those objective measures. It's tracking, it's in a way journaling those things so you can kind of look at correlations. It was interesting to me that you mentioned this idea that you should see a progression over time in some of those numbers. I know for me, you know, I I don't track heart rate variability, but I typically track heart rate, resting heart rate in the morning after waking up, which has been an indicator for me of times when I should back off potentially. But I will see that heart rate gradually drop as I gain fitness. So usually I'll start out somewhere in the mid 50s for me in in a moderately trained state. But as I get closer to a fit state, then I'll be maybe mid 40s if everything's, you know, firing on all cylinders. And so what other trends should people be looking for? Or is that the only one? I mean, those are the key ones that I look at. I don't know. Do you, would you so, recommend so yeah, my first, first morning heart rate, it typically the, what, uh, what I've used in the past with that is if it jumps, if you kind of have a, a baseline of where you're at, like week to week, if it jumps more than 10% for a couple of days, then you know, your body's kind of in an adapted state. If you just wanted to do it on the very like baseline level um, without any of the other technologies, but about a 10% jump. So like five, like a, a, like a five to seven beat for most distance runners. If it jumps up 10% for like two to three days, you, okay, my body's maybe maladapting. Yeah. Something's kicking in like that. If, yeah. If you don't, if, if you're not using like a heart rate variability or something, that's a super easy, easy way to do that um to to kind of monitor yeah. to that and it's one thing i mean so going back to the trend i mean it's one thing to say okay i felt bad for a day or two days i adjusted recovered modified things so that i could feel better and then a lot of times you do but there's some people where it might linger you know one week two weeks three weeks at what point and to me as a coach that's a sign to say okay go get your blood work you know Obviously, you ask the other questions. Are you sleeping enough? Is there stress in your life? You know, any changes to diet? All those things. But if it starts to linger beyond a couple of days, that to me is when you've got to think about intervening in a bigger way, getting further right. checks on on your data, seeing somebody like Noah. Is that fair to say? How long would you that how is. long would you tell someone to wait before they kind of sought a bigger intervention if they were having lingering issues? I think for me, it's probably about three weeks. Like if you're kind of dealing with something, whether it's f like fatigue or just constantly failing out of your attempts at workouts or seeing consistently poor uh, physiological markers, then that would be a good time to both lower the intensity of your training consistently and then start to look for help, see it, see a medical practitioner. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you know, ten to fourteen days is it is, is that kind of typical window where like if you're not making a budge in that whole thing, then you're and you're still really having trouble with workouts. That ten to fourteen days is usually if it hasn't corrected in that amount of time, something's going on. Yeah. So that could be anemia, could be other blood value issues. Yep. What are the typical things you might see? So uh, the kind of the big things that we see in, uh, in a lot of endurance athletes is, is uh, anemia, uh, dysglycemia, which is blood sugar imbalances. And then, and, and those, so yeah, the anemia, everybody's pretty familiar with you have, there's basically three different kinds of anemias that are going on. And so most people will just assume they, they, they don't do a full panel on anemia in a lot of cases in a lot of the Western doctors. So it's hard to get an idea of what's going on with that. So you need to work with somebody who specializes in working with athletes for anemia because there's, there's oftentimes the, the, the values for runners are a little bit different than the values for a general person. Uh, especially on the female athlete side is I've watched the number, the lower number for hemoglobin over the past 10 years drop by almost a point. Um, and so that's like a tenfold decrease in, and where it used to be, you know, about a 12.5. Now I've seen it as low as like 11.5 for hemoglobin. And you really, for, for, mo- for both male and female, for female minimum, you want to see about a 13.5. Males, you want to see about a 14 on that hemoglobin marker, or you're leaving performance on the table. It's not, and what happens with a lot of endurance athletes is they fall into this this category where they're not quite sick, and they look really, and they're lean. And most people are like, oh, if you're lean and skinny, you're healthy. Right. And so they get, you know, basically they get told they're like, oh, it's in your head. There's something, you know, th- those kind of things. So um, I think anemia is a big one, and having somebody who knows how to look for the different patterns. Because oftentimes people just think they need to take iron and, and that's only going to fix it in an iron deficiency anemia. There can be B6, uh, B6 and zinc anemias. There can be B12 and folate anemias. And all of them are important for a process. But having somebody who knows how to read the different blood markers um, for anemia, that's honestly one of the biggest things that we see, especially in the female athlete community is a is a lot of them that are training hard they're just in this what i kind of call the athletes anemia range and so if we fix that up you can you know create a really profound effect on performance and in those areas and then the other thing that we'll typically see is essentially like blood sugar and energy metabolism issues and when we talk about energy metabolism there's a process in our body that happens in every cell called the krebs cycle it's essentially how our body makes energy through anaerobic and aerobic metabolism. So the first part of getting into the Krebs cycle is, is called glycolysis, and that's kind of your quote-unquote anaerobic metabolism. And then from glycolysis, one of those end products goes into the Krebs cycle, which is how you make a lot of your energy aerobically. And what happens in a number of athletes is there's some there, there's all these steps and they all require certain nutrients to basically go from step to step to step. And athletes have a tendency to have like either they're missing something that doesn't allow them to get from one step to the other. So they're not making energy efficiently. And there's some markers in the blood that you can look at. And I guarantee you, if you go to like no, the, the markers that you need to look at at that nobody's looking at at all. I gave a lecture two years ago to a group of doctors um, about this whole thing at a, at a big conference out in California. And everybody was like, it was almost like mind blown that like nobody had looked at 
some of the like some more and, and they're not obscure markers they're legitimately in the the complete metabolic panel but nobody looked at them or understood them the way that we do for athletes and, and so I, I know that there's a big deficiency in being able to easily analyze that off of just a basic blood test. So those are the two things that we look at is, is typically it's going to be an anemia or an energy metabolism issue where we need to just figure out, you know, what, where the little breakdown process is or do we just need to kind of cover the whole thing. And so those two things make a huge change. That's a lot of times like with athletes, all we're doing is making these really simple changes. Um, and, and it, it kind of looks like magic, but it's really like a few things here and there can make such a profound difference. So, so do these issues typically come from like a micronutrient deficiency? And, and if so, is there something inherent about endurance sports where maybe because we're, we're constantly stressing our bodies that we're, we're eating up micronutrients at a higher rate than most people. And so we need to supplement micronutrients, whether it's B vitamins or something like choline or riboflavin or whatever. It, it might be whether you have a metabolic energy issue and or some sort of anemia that this that micronutrient supplementation is what ultimately will help us get back to normal states of these key blood markers. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll, I'll give a, one of the ones that I see the most. And so uh, it is actually in the area, uh, especially with marathoners and endurance athletes is um, it is a micronutrient issue. So that all of the B vitamins in our body. So th th and this is what I don't think a lot of people know either is let's say you go to like Whole Foods or you go to like Walgreens or Costco or wherever you're buying your vitamins. Most of the vitamins that you're going to buy off of the shelf aren't in their activated form. So we talked about the MTHFR gene, right? To make a really simple, like, like simplification of that is essentially if you have that gene or that change, you're not able to activate folic acid into active folate. So essentially taking like folic acid for those people is like a poison because you can't, you, you, it bioaccumulates in your body and you know, can't the whole, with you it. can't do anything with it. And so it starts to become essentially a toxicity to your body. And we could go, I could go in a whole rabbit hole of all of the things that that could potentially do to somebody. But you have every single B vitamin. There's a gene that activates it. And, and most people will carry one or more of those. So the one that I see a lot in endurance athletes is actually B6. And so pyridoxine is the, um, the, in or, the, the inactive form. And that's what's going to be in most of your supplement. There's a form called pyridoxal 5-phosphate. That is the activated form. And, and that one has a, a host of things that it does in the body. But what happens in a lot of endurance athletes is it's actually specific for uh, the conversion of glycogen in your muscles to glucose. So I think if we're talking about this to endurance athletes, everybody can probably relate to this happening at some time. You're doing a workout and you quote unquote hit the wall and you, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're going and you're, you, you're, you're not like really tired but you just run out of fuel and it's almost like you just have to stop. And essentially what's happening in a lot of these people is they're, they're trying to process all of this glycogen out of their muscle and their liver and turn it into glucose, but they run out of this raw material because they're doing it more and more and more. And it's kind of like you get about like two thirds of the way through your workout and you just fall off and you stop and you're like, I'm not tired. What is going on? And then that's where a lot of people get labeled as this quote unquote head case. They're like, oh, well, you just can't push when it's tough, right? And they're actually just deficient in the nutrient that allows them to take the glycogen out of their muscle, convert it to glucose so their muscles can easily use it. 
you we figure that out we give them that nutrient and all of a sudden like legitimately like two or three days later they can redo the exact same workout and like blow through it like it's no problem and so that's one of the ones that i see very regularly and so one of the things that's important is making sure that the vitamins are in their their activated state um and i can give some resources to chris or one of those guys so you can look and see you know, if, if, if your vitamins actually do contain the activated source so you can make sure that that's one of the things in our office that I'm very particular about. I had a company that we had worked with for a really long time that they actually changed their formulas and took the activated nutrients out of them. And I completely dropped almost their entire line from our uh, from our office because it just it, it wasn't going to provide the desired effect that I was looking for. So I think that's actually really important. And it's an underestimated thing that most people aren't aware of is that you have these genetic changes that don't allow you to activate nutrients. You're burning through a lot of them. So if you have a conversion issue and you're burning through a lot of them, eventually your body just runs out with the training load. So is this the concept of bioavailability? Yeah. Like- yeah. And, and so, so you, you, you need the raw materials for your body to activate them. And it's typically a mineral like a zinc, magnesium, copper, um, iron to activate them so people can get deficient in those so they don't activate them or you just don't have the, the raw material store. So I like to just kind of when we're working with people bypass the, uh, you know, the, the rate limiting step. And then also if they're having that issue, we also want to supplement in with this, uh, the specific mineral that will allow that to convert as well. So we're working on both ends of it. But if you're buying a multivitamin off the grocery store shelf, it's probably not doing anything for you. Yeah, I, I will say mo- I, I will tell uh, I will say this: it, it, most of the multivitamins on the market, you shouldn't waste your money. Like, do, like you're probably better off not taking them. Like, if you're just going somewhere and randomly getting one, because a the body works in ratios, not absolutes. So people think, right. oh, I'm going to take this like big mega nutrient. I'm just going to cover all my bases, right? And Oftentimes, it's like you're going to have something that in there that's excess and something that's deficient. So what we see very regularly is somebody will start taking something and they'll initially feel good because that that lower level comes up a little bit. But eventually they crash again because they go toxic in another area. So that's where the blood biomarkers become really important to essentially dial in what you need and what i've realized with most people after doing this for so long is is there's just some specific things most of our patients who have been with us for a long period of time they might take like one to four different like specific nutrients as long as they have a good diet um to to kind of dial in and then you know if somebody's sicker they might have to take more stuff but our goal is always to like I don't want people taking stuff all the time, but there's so many, you know, nutrients that like the body's depleted in. And when we figure out our own genetic tendencies, we can really create this nice balance as long as like the diet's good, stress levels managed. You don't have to, you know, you shouldn't be taking 20 supplements like uh, at a time. Right. And if you've ever been in my office, legitimately, we have what, three walls? Uh, like we basically have an entire room of supplements. Right. So, you know, I'm a guy who works with it all the time. I don't want you taking 20 supplements. You know, right. I want to figure out exactly what it is that you need so we can dial it in. And I think a lot of people do the shotgun approach to health where they're like, oh, all this is good. I'm just going to cover all my bases. And so, you know, back to Chris's point about like the B vitamin you might get off the shelf at your local pharmacy or whatever. Like the bioavailability concept is one where basically we're saying like it, we get most of these micronutrients from food. And it's going to be like plant food, animal food, and 
nature has created these ratios or basically we evolved eating these things from nature that where these these micronutrients came in certain compositions and ratios and so we are used to taking those in at a certain ratio the debate between grass-fed versus sort of conventionally fed meat is a good example where grass-fed beef if you eat that you're going to get the right ratio of omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids but if you eat like a corn-fed beef steak you're going to get a higher ratio relative of b or omega-6 and so that can be a problem right when you look at basically micronutrient balance and so training could affect balance like if you're training super hard you could that could lead to imbalances and micronutrients in your body or if you have some kind of genetic issue that with maybe like your metabolic processes then that can lead to imbalances or if you're maybe eating like a vegan or a vegetarian diet you might have some imbalances you're kind of like always working on those right and so and then that can change over time also is what i'm hearing you say is that um, as you start to supplement you may see that you've gone a little too far and so you that's why you're always experimenting and checking back in with biochemistry and organic acids to see like okay maybe i need to dial back that supplementation now that i've achieved this sort of range of healthiness that i want to be in yeah yeah and so most people will kind of find yeah there there's just a few things that they need like on the regular to kind of make sure things are are, are smoothed out and, and and they're doing that and once you kind of dial that in and and so yeah sometimes we may have to start it depends on you know the patient and their health status we may have to you know hit them pretty hard with you know kind of get get the body up but then our goal is always just to kind of figure out what it is those those few things that your body needs regularly and you know trying to get most of everything you do from like food and nutrients and and i to your, to your point i always kind of say healthy animals and healthy plants make healthy people and so you know it's, it's it's focusing and i think that's why like you know like organic like free range like those kind of things are really important is because it's like you're getting like the, the animals are getting fed what they ne need so they have a higher nutrient ratio but then you're it's also what you're not getting you're not getting a lot of like the pesticides and you're not getting a lot of the other things that your body has to detoxify as well too that has to clean out some of these things and so that's that's another component of clean eating that i think that people don't really pay attention to because there's a whole debate about is like conventional versus organic like you know more nutrient dense is it better but it's it's kind of what you're not getting in some of those things especially like the you know uh animal products stuff like that the animal fat the reason that when they kind of study red meat and those things like that they're typically studying um you know the effect on the body they're typically studying it from uh from the the sorry blanking the uh feedlot fed animals, all those kind of things right. like that. They're studying it from like an unhealthy animal and its effect on the body. So if you're eating, you know, like red meat from like feedlot and you're, it has the wrong ratios of, of the omegas in there, it can create some inflammation in the body. Um, so, so that's where it's important to really just look at like healthy plants, healthy animals make healthy people. And that's the, the, simple, the simple thing of it. So. so my last question on this subject Say I come into your office and I have some sort of nutrient imbalance and I start taking some supplements and I, and I sort of catch back up to a balanced state. Could I eventually, through diet, figure out how to get most of the micronutrients I need to get myself back into a state of balance and then like come off of the supplements? Uh, is, that, is that something that you commonly see or are able to work out with? So patients? it's so so. I would say in today's society and with some of the genetic things, there's usually what you probably could do a fairly good job of doing it with diet alone. But if you're, you know, 
if you're running a marathon if and 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 working and training and you know have kids and family and stuff like that you're really going to be pushing the 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 process and your body's actually going to need a, probably a little bit of like supplementation support, especially if there's a few genetic issues and things like that in that area. So I think it's, it's possible, but for optimization and those kind of things, I think it's actually a little bit more challenging in, in, in that area. And so it's, it's kind of working with somebody based off of your biomarkers and those kind of things to, to figure out exactly what it is that your body needs to, to kind of supplement and balance. And then you know, making sure that you're taking things in the right ratios to, to kind of support your training and just make sure you're getting what you need. So I think I'll always have to be on vitamin D just the way it is, unless I could get more sun, but I can't get that because my wife won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> She's a dermatologist. So you pick your poison. I guess I'll be supplementing vitamin D. It's all good. <laughs> One other thing, so going back, you briefly mentioned this on the blood testing. I just want to make sure that people are clear on this. Is When they're getting a blood panel done and they're looking at all these different values, there's going to be a range on there that's quote-unquote normal. And that range is normal, as you said a couple episodes ago, sort of two standard deviations out from the, from the mean. And basically what we're trying to do with those ranges or what a doctor's trying to do with those ranges is find disease state. They're not trying to find normal for performance-oriented activity. And so even if your blood values are coming back quote-unquote normal, it might be abnormal for what you're trying to do. So if that's true, then how is it that a normal person who might not live in Austin and have access to you, how are we supposed to know what's normal for an athlete versus normal for a sedentary human who just needs to be able to watch Game of Thrones marathons? I'm actually in the process of Natalie and I are actually in the process of of creating um, a resource for people to to have access to what we typically will look at with all the athletes that come in our practice, the blood values and and all of that. I think it's important you can you can work with uh, a practitioner that maybe is a functional medicine doctor because functional medicine doctors are ones that are more looking on the like health and wellness side. So a lot of them are going to have a little bit have some of these tighter values where they're looking at that range because there's a lot of teaching and education going on versus like the disease model versus the wellness model and those areas. And so so try to find somebody in your community that maybe is a is a functional medicine practitioner um, that that maybe has worked with athletes or or is just more focused on the wellness model than the uh, than the disease model. And so kind of shifting and finding that and it's becoming very, very prevalent. A lot of people are starting to focus on the wellness model. Hopefully within the next like two, like two or three months, we should have uh, a, re- a little bit of a resource out that kind of helps kind of guide what we would typically look for. So we're, we're working really hard right now to try to put this together because it is, I mean, it's what walks in our practice like all day, every day. And uh, it's like, how can we help people like identify these things before, you know, things start to fall apart. So, yeah. And so that we can also be our best. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, yeah, if I could get to a 40 vitamin D, great. That's quote unquote normal according to the blood values. But if I'm at 50, then that actually gets to a place where it's starting to help me with recovery, immune response, and all of the things that matter so that I can run my fastest races. So let's talk about agile 
healthcare in a sense. We've already been kind of talking about it, but I want to make sure that people recognize that that's what we've transitioned to. Kind of went from agile training and coaching to agile healthcare. And I think the important part for people to realize about that is that, and this relates to the whole methodology that you're talking about, which is that you ideally, in rapid form, develop a hypothesis about what might be going on, intervene in some way to test whether that hypothesis is real, learn, see how you feel accordingly, and then adjust and make further changes if needed or keep doing what you're doing if it's working. And so that requires a dialogue with a practitioner. And I think we live in a world where we think it's go to the doctor, get fixed, don't go to the doctor, <laughs> right? Like that's sort of the yeah. industrial model. Like if it's like, I'm going to go to the doctor because I'm sick. I'm going to get some drugs and then I'm going to not have to go back for a long time. It's that's, that's what we're used to. And so a lot of times we're afraid to kind of go back and say, look, or, or we don't expect it, or if we, if we stay sick, we think that's wrong. I need to go to somebody else instead of recognizing that this is a dialogue. This is a process, a learning process. And the faster you can get intervention and then test a, a some sort of, you know, help for that, that issue, then you can, the faster you can iterate and hopefully get to a better state. So how does that work for you in your practice or what's your ideal doctor patient relationship look like in terms of that learning so i like one of the, the things that i've actually developed in our practice is i always talk about like the muscles being the window to the body and so obviously we combine uh some different like eastern medicine approaches um some different muscle things and what you start to see is is the muscles and the body will start to change and adapt based on overall health standpoint and so you start to see these changes and so i can see based off of like inhibited inhibited muscles, things like that that are changing and knowing their relationship to the meridians and acupuncture, those kind of things. And each of the meridians and acupuncture are related to certain body organ system areas. If I start to see, you know, imbalances in certain muscles or people having, you know, and problems in certain areas, like let's take the calves, for example. Uh, if somebody comes in and they're like, man, my, you know, and, and it's not something normal, like, oh, my calves are like super tight then then I know that there may be something going on in their like adrenal system. And I'm like, okay, this is a window that maybe the stress is a little high. They're probably peeing out some of their minerals. So they might need some more calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium. Um, it's very common with, with, you know, that calf cramping, calf tension, tight calves, that there, there's an activation of this kind of neural hormonal system. So I'm like, okay, we need to start looking at maybe supplementing in some nutrients. We need to figure out what that stress trigger is in the body. And so for me, it's kind of in our whole evaluation process of the body is, is the muscles being the window to, uh, you know, to, to some of the things that are going on other, like early. So the muscles will change um, as a result of what's going on to the physiology. And so for me, it's on understanding this whole patterning of what the different like muscles are related to in, uh, you know, in, in, in kind of the acupuncture system. So that, that's kind of how I do it. Is, and so for me, I like to work with patients if they're training, we kind of have our, our different, you know, if they come in with an injury, obviously we want to get the injury resolved as quickly as possible. 
and then we want to like try to like look at their functionality after the injury is corrected i like to look at the functionality of the body as it's like and it kind of depends on what the person's objective is right like if they have an injury and they just want to like get fixed i'm totally cool with that we can you know we'll fix it we'll get them out back out there as quick as possible but then you know you have the number of athletes that have been with us for a while and i think chris you've kind of recognized this jason you've kind of recognized this is y'all want to function better too. You want to be able to get the most out of what you're doing. And so this is kind of a longer process of like identifying underlying, you know, micronutrient issues, underlying things that might be going on that we need so your body can actually start to function at its optimal. And then, you know, once we go through that process of, of kind of identifying the optimal function of the body, and that can be anything from like three months to you know, three years, depending on, you know, it, it, it could be eternity, you know, we're always working on that. And then we kind of get into this more like kind of wellness maintenance model. Once we kind of like identified this, like these functional improvements that we're looking at where, you know, you guys now come in, we tune up some things, we check on some things, we make sure things aren't getting out of balance because relatively for the most part, we've got some things dialed in with your like nutrition and, 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 and supplementation. You guys are really good at gauging your training load, those kind of things. And so, so that's kind of how I've, I've done it. And so, you know, I, a lot of our patients will come in, you know, like from a maintenance standpoint, every like you know, maybe like two to four weeks, depending on how much they're training. And it may vary, you know, during different cycles. If they're in a heavy marathon period, they might come in every, you know, like two weeks. If they're peaking in a marathon and they want to make sure everything's, you know, good, they may come in once a week. If, you know, they're just kind of in a recovery phase or a base phase, maybe every three to four weeks. But, you know, what I've seen with most people, at least from like the whole, you know, kind of chiropractic, acupuncture, body management side of things is, especially if you're training about, th you know, three to four weeks is as long as you want to leave it, you know, for, for, for me and, and that standpoint. And it's just making sure that we're tuning things up and, and checking on things and, you know, rotating the tire, changing the oil, doing that kind of things, making sure everything is, is good. And so that's how I've always looked at it is, is we just want to maintain normal maintenance because when your body, your, your nervous system is balanced, when your muscular system is balanced, when you know, your, your, your stress is balanced, your, your body's able to recover quite a bit better. And so we always want to, to kind of look at, at, at making sure that, you know, we're maintaining the structural health, you know, the muscular health, we're looking at nutrition, balancing those kind of things. So, so a core tenet of the agile methodology in the software context, we always say software is never done. There's not really truly an end goal when you're building some kind of software application or product, whatever that is. You're constantly iterating, adapting, evolving, learning, changing, moving in different directions. <clears throat> and I would assume that the human body is the same way, right? That our environment is constantly changing. We're aging. We're doing different things. We're under different stresses. You know, our kids grow up and that presents like you know, a constantly changing sort of like stress environment or work is constantly changing. And so we're always working on making sure that we're, we're finding the imbalances as they develop and rebalancing. And so our diet could constantly change. Our training will change. Our environmental stressors and contexts will change and our body is constantly changing. And so we always want to be checking in on that and um, responding, adapting, evolving, and trying to kind of like keep ourselves in the in in the normal range of happy healthy living the yeah. work is never done <clears throat> that's right especially with running <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you know i do think that 
this also goes to the point that that Matt Centrowitz made on our last episode was it's easy to be overwhelmed by all of these things we've been talking about over the last four episodes because we've talked about genetics and blood markers and inflammation in different foods and diet and adjusting your training based on heart rate variability. There's a bunch of different things we've thrown at people. And it's easy to get sucked into the trap of trying to optimize all of those things at one time versus picking one variable variable one thing to look at one thing to tune into to figure out how you're feeling in that world make small adjustments then iterate find ways that you're feeling better if you make those adjustments integrate that into your routine and into your world and then go find that next variable to play with so we're not telling people to just go do it all at once and try to optimize everything at once because as you just said jason it is a journey Pick one thing to focus on, get information, then develop a hypothesis about what will be going on. Try a few things to make it better. And then as you learn from that and feel like you've kind of figured it out, go to something else. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. Um, I mean, you can you can certainly experiment both in your training and in your diet and nutrition at the same time, but these are multivariate equations. And if you just start fucking with all the variables at one time, you're never gonna know what's affecting what and how you're gonna make change. So even though, you know, you step back and you look at diet and it's like, oh man, all these things could be going on. We're trying to kind of like construct frameworks within which you can start to experiment. And so, you know, um, I guess we should probably lay out like what would be the key things to look at first from a diet or from a training perspective and then think about, okay, um, maybe like I don't have any genetic problems. Um, so I don't need to really like worry about that, but, um, I might have, um, high inflammatory responses to foods I'm eating. And so maybe that's the first thing I want to tackle is inflammation. I think the best thing for you to do would be see a medical practitioner, a, a functional medicine doctor, if you're here in Austin, come see Noah and sort of do some testing early on, figure out what you need to go after first from a health and wellness standpoint, and then start experimenting in those realms until you make some progress and you feel like, okay, maybe I've got inflammation under control and now I want to look at um, something else about my, my diet and, and nutrition strategy and how that affects my health outcomes. Um, sleep, like you can start experimenting on sleep while you're experimenting on your diet nutrition. Similarly, you can start working on stress. Like you can work on multiple fronts at the same time, um, but make sure that you're controlling your experiments. You're being a good scientist. You're developing sort like tangible hypotheses and then you're testing those by messing with one variable at a time. And then with your training, um, you know, similarly, maybe you just start by, uh, by, starting to track like your heart rate variability and your resting heart rate and you just see how it's responding over time don't change anything about your training just collect information and see what's going on and then if you think okay i have a reasonable level of evidence to indicate that i should make a change then you make a change um and so i guess maybe that is even the better starting point on all these fronts is collect some information and then see, do I have sufficient evidence to suggest that I should do something differently than what I'm doing right now? And if you think that you do, then you start to experiment with how to make change. 
Yeah, and if you're having issues, <coughs> I mean, I think a lot of people have, they have a hypothesis about something that might be going on in their world, or they know what they suck at. You know, like, I know I suck at sleep. So if I was going to focus on sleep for any period of time, then that would be an obvious place to start for me. But, and so I think people can generally point to something that they have a sense or if they have, you know, issues with stomach problems, maybe that points to some either food inflammation responses or, or food allergy responses that they could perhaps get tested for. So I think we all have a little bit of a hypothesis about what might be going on or or if you're just feeling bad for whatever reason, you know, I, training is not going well. It's not going well consistently for several weeks. That's an indicator that, hey, let's get some base data collected, get your blood values checked, pull pull the information on heart rate variability using the app so you can try to see, OK, I'm feeling crappy because why? And those are the places to start, but just don't try to do 18 things, you know, pick one or two things to focus on. Ideally find a coach and a practitioner who can support you in the process and then learn, iterate, learn, iterate, right? Adapt and overcome. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a yeah, kind of cumulative effect. Like there's not like one answer or one approach. It's, it's, you've got to, you've got to kind of learn yourself and, and, and figure out what it is. It, and, and it's, and it's not going to be overnight. It's going to take some time. So I think that's the important thing is, is, is giving yourself ample time. We always say in our office, you know, no re- unrealistic outcomes, just unrealistic time frames. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it's probably a good idea for us to reiterate the point you made in the last episode, uh, which is that like no, nothing that we're talking about here is going to be a silver bullet to solving any of your problems, right? Like we're, you can gradually make progress on all fronts from a health outcomes and a training outcomes perspective. And those often are going to be so synergistically related. Um, but we're not, there's no panacea solution. There's no silver bullet. You're, you're, it, but you can make progress toward feeling better and performing better by doing little things every day. And those little things will accumulate just like when we looked at the model of degeneration, all the little things we do that we don't know are bad for us accumulate over time. And um, it's also going to take time to reverse those negative trends that accumulate over several years. Um, and so also be patient. Change takes time, which I think yep. is your point, right? Yep. Only re- <laughs> well, <laughs> just have to set yeah. realistic time frames. And as you said, no silver bullets. <laughs> so if there's some silver bullet out there posited in the media, then it's probably not. Right. Yes, yeah, not right. Bullshit. They're selling you something. <laughs> so this is patient, hard, deliberate work required to figure out what works for you specifically and what worked for your friend last week is probably not the thing that's going to work for you and there's no magic supplement you can take no magic diet you can be on no magic app that you can necessarily singularly use to find to find your best performing self and so hopefully this mini series has given you some of the things to consider in your own journey personally as i said we will have a final episode a bonus episode for this with a Q&A so we would love to get your questions. Please submit those if you can by this Sunday, the 21st of April to Chris at roguerunning.com. We'll try to get through as many of those as we can. And those questions can be general about any of the topics we can discuss or maybe more specific about your individual situation. And we can do some consults from afar that way. And so with that, we will wrap this mini series on the Human Performance Project. 
Stay tuned for our fifth bonus episode, and we'll give you also on that episode some more info on what to expect from these two guys in terms of further information coming, perhaps via podcasting, as we ex- can look to cons- extend or spin off this series. So thanks to Dr. Moose and Jason for being on this mini series journey. I think it's been a lot of fun and very, very informative as well. And of course, thanks to our audience as always for listening. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.